Live from the legendary Red Key Tavern in Indianapolis, Indiana, it's Uncle Dan's Story Hour, featuring author and screenwriter Dan Wakefield, a master of the word, and host Will Higgins from the Indianapolis Star, brought to you by Beer Brewery, creating award-winning handcrafted batch beers with pints and growlers available at the Tap Room at 65th and Binford Boulevard, and Miller Eads, an electrical contractor serving central Indiana since 1969. Oh, totally heartfelt and genuine, and I thank you for that. I'm Will Higgins from Indy Star, and uh, you are at Uncle Dan's Story Hour with Dan Wakefield. And today, the topic is writing from dangerous places. I uh, myself went to Iraq in 2008 with the troop surge and spent eight weeks there reporting for the star. Our guest uh, to the right is Doug Wissing, who went to Afghanistan three times, wrote two books about it, and also numerous articles for the New York Times, Washington Post, and other high-toned uh, periodicals. And of course, you all know Dan Wakefield, Uncle Dan, author of 11 books, who talks as good as he writes, as you'll see. And today, he's going to talk about traveling, masquerading as a religious pilgrim and traveling into some scary situations as a young man. Um, the thing about what the three of us have done was we went into war zones and we didn't have to, which might sound stupid. So I'll throw it to you, Dan. Why did, where did you go and why did you do it? Well, first of all, I have to say I was 23 years old. So we have to have a flashback, which requires quite a flash. It was 60 years ago, ladies and gentlemen. And uh, I had just published my first two articles in The Nation magazine, uh, one on the Emmett Till murder trial and one on Dorothy Day in the Catholic Worker House in the Bowery. And I was really ready to go. I wanted to see the world. I wanted to write about everything. And I had read somewhere that Ernest Hemingway said, in order to be a writer, you have to get shot at. That was one of the requirements. So I thought, well, where can I go to get shot at? And this was the Eisenhower age, so things were very peaceful here. For today, I wouldn't have had to leave the country. <laughs> but at that time, the place in the world most likely to get shot at was Israel. Israel was only eight years old, and I uh, was surrounded by Arabs who were very upset about Israel being there. And so <clears throat> I went to the publisher of the nation and said, if you will get me to Israel, give me enough money to live for a month, I'll take it from there. I'll write a series of articles for you. He said, well, uh, I guess you get in trouble, but I guess that's what you want. So George Kirstein, publisher of The Nation, said that he would give me a round-trip ticket on the SS Israel, which was the first ship the Israelis had, and it was a small ship and it took 13 days to go from New York City to Haifa. And that was an adventure in itself. I felt that uh, I could do all right in Israel because I had read 
a book by Arthur Kessler, who was famous at the time for writing a novel called Darkness at Noon, which was the big anti-communist novel of the time. But he had written an autobiography called Arrow in the Blue, and he had written about going to Palestine as a young journalist, and he could survive because he could go to a kibbutz, and the, the rule was in a kibbutz, you, they had to put you up for three days and feed you and give you a place to sleep, and then after three days, you had to work at whatever they, job they needed, but then you could stay as long as you would work. So he would work and get fed and housed, and he would get an article about it. So I figured I can do the same thing, and I was on my way. So Dan was 23, and, uh, not, and, and not stupid, but he, uh, naive. <laughs> but uh, Doug was uh, a grandfather when he first went to Afghanistan. Doug, how do you explain that? Well, I guess I should start by saying I know a lot more about Central Asia than your average Hoosier. I had already written a book about Tibet and had spent a fair amount of time in Central Asia, including some of the Pashtun areas that are Afghan people along the Pakistan border in the tribal regions. This would have been in the period right after the, the Soviet war, so it's when all the jihadists were kind of packed together there. So I knew something about it. Uh, and I was down in Mexico, actually, and I, was, I happened upon a Herald Tribune. And I'm standing on a street corner in Mexico, and I'm, there's an article about an army team of farmer soldiers that were from Texas. And they had gone to Afghanistan with a development mission, and they were going to start a seed, wheat seed farm at either 11,000 feet, and it was 8,000 acres, or 8,000 feet and 11,000 acres. Either way, it made no sense because you can't grow wheat that high. I've been all over Tibet, way in the west, way in the east. Tibetans eat barley because you can't grow wheat that high. So I'm thinking, what are these Texans doing? And I'm standing there on the corner reading this thing, and I see that there's a team from Indiana that's also going, also farmer soldiers. I ripped it out, stuck it in my briefcase, forgot about it. Three weeks later, happened upon this article, and I went, oh yeah, those Hoosier guys. And they were Indiana National Guard soldiers, and so I started making some calls. And I finally got a sergeant on the phone, and he said, well, if you want to talk to them, you got to come either this afternoon or tomorrow morning, because they're going to Afghanistan. So I had some time the next morning, drove over to Camp Atterbury, Columbus, and I figured I was going to be talking to people who were packing up. And instead, I was ushered into a room with a whole bunch of officers. And the team is very small. There's only 65 soldiers in this team. There were a bunch of officers, and I'm thinking, I've never been in the military, but I'm thinking, this is an awful lot of officers. And they told me about their, what they were going to do, and they were going to try and win hearts and minds by helping with farm stuff. And, and, you know, I'm still pretty smirky about the Texans and their silly wheat seed idea. And um, so I asked the soldiers, how did they get prepared? And they said, well, we went to Indiana University, and we took Pashto. We took Afghan language classes, we took Afghan culture classes, and of course Indiana University has got one of the best Central Asian departments in the country. And I'm like, huh, that's interesting. 
And then they said, and then we went to Purdue because Purdue's got an Afghan agricultural project. So we, then we learned what to do and what's kind of appropriate for Afghans. And I'm kind of going, huh. Well, but I still had my question. What are the projects you're going to do once you get there? And they said, well, we don't know. We're going to ask the Afghans when we get there. And I was taken by this. And I said, well, I'll go with you. And they said, okay. <laughs> and six weeks later, I was in Afghanistan with that 50 pounds of body armor and the helmet. I decided to go because it was a, there were 2,400 Indiana National Guard soldiers that were being sent over to Iraq. And it's the biggest deployment of the National Guard since World War II. And these are, you know, the National Guard used to just, you know, put sandbags around when a river got high. And um, so this was quite another matter. So it was a very interesting story to see these uh, citizen soldiers, as they're called, you know, put in a very tight spot. And so I thought, oh, there are going to be a lot of good stories over there, and there were. And in addition, it let me get out of the office for eight weeks, <clears throat> which was tremendous. Um, I wasn't getting along with my editor very well at the time, and the idea of utter freedom for two months was, was extremely appealing, so I, I, I wasn't forced to go. I, I, I offered to go, insisted on going. As it, the time got nearer, the one, Steve Verta, this editor, dragged me into his office and said, look at this, and he had pulled up on YouTube a uh, Al-Qaeda video of a gun truck, American gun truck, getting blown up by one of those IEDs. You know, they, f they would film that. And it was jarring. He said, are you still into this? And I said, yeah, yeah, I'm still into it. And then I went and saw the movie Old Co No Country for Old Men, in which you recall the gunfire in that movie is extremely powerful. And I wish I hadn't seen that, but I went anyway. And it was an eye-opening, life-changing eight weeks and I'm glad I did. And a lot of weird stuff happens. A lot of weird stuff happens in, you know, in, in places foreign to us Hoosiers. Dan, give, me, give us an example of something that you saw that you thought, what, how could a boy from Broad Ripple, Indiana, be seeing this? Well, before I went, I had read the book Revolt in the Desert by T.E. Lawrence, better known as Lawrence of Arabia. And this is before the movie was made but he was still pretty well known. And uh, the one thing that hooked me about the book, he described going to have a meal with the Bedouins, going to a Bedouin camp. And uh, he described the meal he had, and it was very elaborate, and there were five kinds of coffee afterwards. It was quite a ritual. And I thought, my God, I would love to go to a Bedouin camp and see if I could get the meal that Lawrence had. So I'm, I've just gotten there, I got into Jerusalem. I thought, how in the world am I gonna find better ones? So I, I actually found a guy who knew everybody in Israel, and Israel at that time, in 1956, it was like a small town. It was like New York in the 50s where everybody knew everybody. So I go to this guy who knows everybody named Heim Blanc. I said, how do I get to the better ones? He said, okay. Uh, go to Beersheba, go to a place called the Cafe Arava, and ask for moits. Well, I thought, this is a way of putting a guy off, you know, I mean, just... So, anyway, I, I hitchhiked, I got a ride on an oil truck from Jerusalem to Beersheba. I go to the Cafe Arava, I said, uh, 
listen, is there a guy here named Moy? He said, oh, he's right over there in that corner. So I went over and I said, well, Haim told me about you and th thought maybe you could take me to the Bedouins. And he said, sure, I'm going tomorrow. So I'll take you, I'll tell him you're a, a, an American dignitary. And it's a great, <laughs> great honor. So I went there and he, he pulled it off. He told him I was a, an important guy from America. And so they killed the sheep and they made the same meal that Lawrence had. And the meal was served in a huge pot that was passed around. And every part of the sheep was in that pot along with rice. And the tradition was you had to reach in and take any part you came to. You couldn't look and pick out a part and then roll it up with some rice and eat it. And I was terrified I would get the eye. <laughs> and somehow I managed to fish around well enough that I didn't get an eye. I don't know what I got, but as long as it wasn't the eye, I was happy. So uh, that was really, a, I must say, a great moment. All this time, by the way, we're in this huge tent, and you never see a woman, but you hear them. You hear these tinkling bracelets outside of the walls of the tent. You know they're doing this whole thing. They probably killed the sheep and cooked it, prepared the whole thing, and then they bring in the same five different kinds of coffee that Lawrence had. I felt very satisfied. I had done it. I was just, I was Dan of Indiana. <laughs> I, 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 didn't, I did not hear, I did not realize your affinity for Lawrence of Arabia. I saw that movie at the Vogue. It's the first movie I ever saw just down the street, Lawrence of Arabia, David Lean, and I think Omar Sharif's in it and their rivals. And um, so I, it means something to me, too. And one time when I was there in Baghdad, I found myself invited to play tennis with an Iraqi general who was, um, who was a very high-ranking dude and sort of a Bond villain-type person. Everybody kowtowed to him. His name was Abadi. And he was definitely in charge. And he, but he loved tennis, and he had this tennis court built in this bombed-out courtyard in downtown Baghdad with, you know, the buildings all around destroyed by the American bombs, you know, some years earlier. And um, people were obeying him left and right. There was ball boys. And uh, one, one time I was playing opposite him. We were playing doubles, and he gave himself an excellent partner, like a young college-level type player. And a ball floated kind of in the middle softly. So I, you know, I did like I do. I'm quite good at tennis. And I reached over and I peppered it, you know, fairly firmly at the general, but not at his head or his chest even, at his feet, which is okay. And it did hit his foot. And, you know, I gave that, sorry about that, which is sort of a fake thing tennis players do. <laughs> and, um, and didn't think much of it. The very next ball, my own partner uh, left one real soft in, right in the middle and that partner of the generals came over with his left hand and annihilated it right at my chest. So I, I got the message right then that in this game the general always wins. <laughs> but he took us back to his house and which was a hell of a really nice house. He's a general and everything and a, a, um, a servant came and removed his sweaty sneakers and tennis shoes and then put um, uh, slippers on his feet and he showed me photographs and there was his grandfather with Lawrence of Arabia 
Wow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We have this in common. So, we, right? yeah, we, yeah. <laughs> so but, oh, but, but he mentioned food. And we ate really well with the U.S. Army in Iraq. W- what was your situation like? Probably somewhat like yours in terms of, I don't think people have any idea how lavish the food is in Afghanistan or in Iraq on the army bases. And uh, did, did, how many pounds did the average soldier gain? In when I, the unbelie- usually you go to war and you come back with that lean and drawn look. At the average American soldier in 2008 was come back eight pounds heavier. So the, the defects, as they call it, the dining facilities, we're like a, an incredibly affluent high school cafeteria with super graphics and, you know, high-end cappuccino machines and different stations for five different kinds of ethnic foods plus all, you know, good old Hoosier, you know, American food. And the whole, it just went on and on and on. And, and uh, But Afghanistan, where, where I spent a lot of time, was different because it was up in the mountains. It's up in the Hindu Kush. So... You're up at seven, 8,000 feet, which has a pretty big impact on your metabolism. And I was on a lot of time on a frontline base, a FOB as they term it, Forward Operating Base Salerno, which, which was in a uh, province called Host Province, right on the Pakistan border. So it was attacked so often, it had the nickname of Rocket City, and you could actually go to the, to the uh, PX and you could buy um, sweatshirts that said Rocket City. So people tended to spend a lot of time in the gym working out. You were kind of ready. You needed to be able to sprint, and you needed to be able to get up the mountains. And, and I was attached to this team, this development team, that broke the wire a lot, which means you got to leave the base. And you have to understand that 90% of the American soldiers never broke the wire, never left the base. So they were there at the DFAC, at the dining facility, eating a lot. But the people that went out stayed pretty fit, even the State Department diplomats would be out. They were, they were all pretty lean, and when the, the diplomats would come from Kabul, from the embassy, they were always called the house cats of Kabul because they were kind of really plump and they could barely get their body armor closed. But they would come out because they wanted to be around the dignitaries that would come out to the front line. Um, and it was, uh, it was something where you had to be careful what you ate, unlike your situation, if you were, of course, the young soldiers who had raging metabolisms, they could pile their plates up with lots of fried stuff. But for our more, the more mature people, you would get like a turkey wing and some rice. And you know, you'd be careful about this. It, but the, what you were saying about the soldiers, I saw some soldiers who would come out and they would be on these incredible diets where they would determine, again, these were reservists and National Guard people that were older, so they would come out with this desire to lose 50 pounds while they were out in the field. So they would literally do this. They would drop incredible amounts of weight. And one day I was in the latrine, and I was sitting there not long after I had gotten to Fob Salerno. Again, a pretty dangerous place where there's, it's kind of fraught. And I looked over at the, at the metal wall and scratched into the metal wall. It said, I am going to die. And I can imagine this young soldier, it's scary, you know, and you finally get a little privacy and you get in touch with your fear and whatnot and you scratch this thing on there. 
some period of time went by. I spent a lot of time breaking the wire and going in and out and getting a lot more used to things. And one day I found myself back in the latrine, back in the same cubicle. And I looked over at the wall and I realized I had misread it. What he had actually scratched in was, I am going to diet. <laughs> well, Uncle Dan, uh, we were, so we were eating, you know, high on the hog, but poor Uncle Dan in Israel in 1956 was on his own and he was going hungry. So what did you do, Uncle Dan? Well, uh, I lost 12 pounds. And I was not overweight to begin. I'd been living in the village on spaghetti and uh, Chianti, so I wasn't really overweight. But uh, I, I, one of the best meals I had uh, was from going out on an Israeli fishing boat, and that was not in search of food, but I'd read in the Jerusalem Post that the Israeli fishermen on the Sea of Galilee were being fired on by Syrian gun emplacements. So I thought, wow, there's my chance to fulfill Hemingway's <laughs> rule and get shot at. So I went down, I went to Nazareth, I went down to the shore at dawn, and I was so lucky, I, I found the one fisherman who spoke English. He had learned English in the British Army, and he's then further luck he said one of his men didn't show up, didn't show up, so I could go with him if I would pull an oar. So I said, great. So I got in this very long boat. It was like a long rowboat, and the oar was not like any oar you've seen at Wawa Sea. The thing was just, it wasn't shaped. It was just a piece of wood. And you sat there and rowed this piece of wood. But we went out, uh, we could see the Syrian guns, uh, unhappily, they did not fire at us and miss, oh, didn't oh, fire, bummer. but we saw them and an Israeli police boat came by and checked on us. And that night, uh, the way we fished was to throw the nets down and then you took wooden mallets and pounded on the bottom of the boat, which evidently attracted the fish. And at dawn, we took them back to the shore and the captain of the boat said, well, I can't pay you but I can take you to breakfast and we can eat one of the fish we caught. I said, that was a very good deal. And we went there and took a couple of fish and there were these little stalls with guys with charcoal fires and we had a fish breakfast and that was very satisfying. I was still hungry. Uh, I really ate usually just breakfast and something at night. But then I remembered Arthur Kessler, who had gone and worked on a kibbutz from time to time. So I decided to do that, because I knew I'd get fed. And of course, I would stay there beyond the three days and take any job. So I worked at one kibbutz pitching hay, and another one picking vegetables. But the best job of all, uh, I went to a kibbutz in the southernmost part of the Negev Desert. This was the Pioneer Kibbutz, and uh, I was told that they had a job at the sheep camp, which was even farther in the desert than the kibbutz. And the sheep camp was actually a converted railroad car, and there were three guys and one woman, and the woman, of course, did all the cooking and took care of the abandoned railroad car, 
and the guys took the flocks out, and one of the men was taking his vacation in Tel Aviv. So I got to go help with one of the flocks. First thing they did was give me a rifle and uh, showed me how to shoot it. And this was in case any unfriendly Bedouins were to come by. So uh, I was ready for that, but I thought being a shepherd is gonna be really great. You just sit on the hillside, play a lute if you had one, uh, <laughs> and you know, think deep thoughts. And I never worked so hard in my life. I was running constantly because the sheep were always running away. I think they had heard about that God loved the lost sheep more than any others. So they all wanted to be the lost sheep. And they did a good job of it. But I spent the whole day doing that. But the greatest thing was at night, we went, we'd start out before dawn, come back a little after sunset. And the way you bathed at night was there was a pipeline through the Negev from Jerusalem to a lot, the southernmost part and you would unscrew a part of the pipeline and this huge stream of cold water would shoot up. You'd take off your clothes and stand in that stream. And I swear I saw more stars than were ever imaginable. <laughs> and standing in that cold stream of water in the middle of the desert, I thought, I, I am a long way from Indiana. <laughs> and that was, felt like a real accomplishment. <laughs> Well, you were a long way from Indiana. Let me ask you, what did your mom and dad think, though? Um, well, when they first heard about it, they told my cousin Catherine in Louisville, she said, what's you want to go to Israel for? That's about 40 miles south of Louisville. <laughs> uh, anyway, it was like that. Uh, and they had my, when I didn't ride home for a long time, they had my cousin Junior call the State Department and uh, ask if I was alive. And uh, that, they were pretty worried. I got a follow-up question on the kibbutz. They, um, they, I don't know much about it, but don't the political parties control, um, different political parties control the kibbutzes? Yes, and the main ones at that time were controlled, they were started by these parties. The centrist party was called Mapai. The left-wing radical party was called Mapam. And on the Mapam kibbutz, you worked twice as hard. I mean, you were like a driven slave almost. And that's where I pitched hay. So I'll never forget that one. At, at the Mapai kibbutz, I picked vegetables, which was more in keeping with their tone. Um. Well, so there you have Uncle Dan. He's got like two-thirds of the Bible. He was a fisherman and a shepherd all within six months. And um, uh, I, I think we're going to take a intermission now. And, uh, and Sophie Fought is going to perform I Can't Get Started. And, but first I want to ask Uncle Dan, why is she going to perform I Can't Get Started? The reason she's going to perform this song, which by the way is my favorite on the Red Key Jukebox, number 127, and because we're talking about the exotic lure of foreign lands, and this is the way that song begins. I've been around the world in a plane, I've settled revolutions in Spain, 
the North Pole I have charted, but I can't get started with you. <laughs> So we're back to uh, writing uh, from dangerous places, and uh, we're talking with Doug Wissing and Dan Wakefield. I'm Will Higgins, and um, the three of us were in, uh, I was in Iraq, Doug was in Afghanistan, and Uncle D was in Israel. And of course we had to interact with people and interview them. We're, we were there as journalists after all. And it seems to me, in a, it's, we do a lot of interviewing anyway, I do it for a living here, but when you're over there in a weird place, unusual circumstances come up. I found myself interviewing a, a colonel in his office at one of those FOBs, a forward operating base in the middle of Iraq. And um, so we're just talking, he has a desk, and it sort of feels like we're in this country. And then suddenly somebody yells down the hallway, incoming! And so with that, the guy just gets up out of his chair and lies flat on the floor. And so I, I just did the same, and I was sort of surprised. The place gets mortared a lot, he was saying. And so I was sort of, you know, speechless for a minute, and he just kind of said, lying on his stomach on this concrete floor, he goes, what's your next question? <laughs> so I, I, so I had, I, I'm, after a while, I, had, I actually had a next question. But um, Doug, you had some probably interesting interviews when you were over there. Tell us about something that sticks out. Well, with Funding the Enemy, that was a, a, a fairly intense book about the failure of counterinsurgency in Afghanistan and the, the factors that entered into it. And when that came out, it was a fairly radical thought that we were funding both sides of the war and uh, there was this terrible systemic dysfunction. And in the process of doing that, I, I interviewed hundreds of people from security <coughs> grunts on the ground to generals, from uh, low-level contractors to ambassadors, and uh, kind of wound it all up in, into, a, uh, into the narrative of that book. And, but when I went back, after I had published Funding the, Funding the Enemy, to finish up the research of Hopeless But Optimistic, it was kind of a different story because I'd been called out as a pretty severe critic of the war. I'd published a piece in uh, foreign policy called The Jews Ain't Worth the Squeeze, which was quoting a Marine officer. 
And so the Marines didn't like me, the Pentagon didn't like me, uh, the State Department didn't like me. So it didn't go quite as well. And, and I, when you ask about interviews, I, I think of the one that I didn't get, which was the special investigative, the special inspector general for Afghanistan reconstruction is a very powerful individual. He has been appointed by Congress to oversee all of, the, all of your money, all the taxpayers' money that has been poured into Afghanistan and primarily wasted, unfortunately. He was in Kabul at the same time I was there. He was at the embassy. He really wanted to talk to me. His staffer is contacting me. I'm in Kabul. It's kind of a little difficult to get from here to there because of kidnappings, but we were going to meet in the embassy. And then the staffer starts calling me back. No, the State Department won't let you do it unless they have somebody there. So this guy is appointed by Congress, but the State Department, I don't know, do they think we're going to like pass notes or say something naughty? We were never able to get it done. Finally, the staffer said, no, the State Department won't let it happen. You're, we're going to have to do this in DC. And literally, we had to wait till we both got back to Washington to have that interview. <laughs> Doug flew into and then into, you, Kabul, yeah. into Kabul, and then he had to take a, a taxi quite a distance over some treacherous roads filled with IEDs. And he gets to the army base, and they won't let him in the gates. They were being, they were mad at me about that book. Mm -hmm. And so I had done this before where now, because everything is so dangerous, we have lost the war in case you haven't picked up on that. It's now so dangerous, you can't go the 40 miles from Kabul, the capital, out to the major army base which is Bagram Airfield, they fly everybody. You get in a plane and it does this kind of like little hop and you're in Bagram. It's the silliest thing because the ground is too, too dangerous. However, for me, they said, just get a taxi. <laughs> so uh, I took a taxi out there and, and what you, I had done this the first time I had embedded where I knew what to do. It's, you got to find your taxi driver. You have to have an absolutely trusted guy. You go out and you leave the airport security and that little distance from there to finding your taxi driver is like, you gotta get the right guy or you're kidnapped. Got the right guy, good guy, we go out there and you start calling the person in the Bagram airfield. Okay, we're 20 miles out. Now we're 10 miles out because when you show up, it's like um, giant walls, 20 feet high. This is like an enormous base, giant mechanized gates, it's impregnable. Well, it actually isn't because they've gotten inside, but it's pretty impregnable. So we get there, we get closer, we're like two miles away, we're almost there. We get there and we're here. And what's supposed to happen is this great big mechanized gate is supposed to open up, an armored MRAP, an armored vehicle, comes out with guys in full battle rattle, the whole thing, they jump out, the door opens up, you jump from your little taxi in there and whoop, you're back in. Everything's safe. I get out there and I say, we're here. And the sergeant says, uh, we have a problem. They left me out there for hours and hours. And this is like right at the gate that is where all the insurgent attacks happen. This is like what's called the soak yard where there's hundreds of trucks waiting to get in because they leave them out there for 24 hours because the theory is that the explosives will soak through their wrappings and then the dogs can smell the explosives or it just blows up. So that's where I was for many hours, essentially the most dangerous place in Afghanistan. And finally, somebody decided that they would let me in. And then it, was, then it went okay. <laughs> ah. 
Uncle D, what about you? Who did you interview that was interesting? My big moment, uh, I got to interview Golda Meir when she first became Foreign Minister of Israel. And the experience reminded me a lot, she reminded me a lot, of Miss Fern Hall, the principal of School 80. <laughs> she had on a black dress, hair pulled back in the back, very nice, very formal. You knew that there were boundaries. You knew that she wasn't going to tell me some incredible secret about foreign policy. In fact, this was engineered by a young guy who took a liking to me in the press office took pity on me, bought me a few dinners, and uh, got me this interview, which was, was quite an honor. And it was an honor to see her and to interview her. But later, about two years ago, I called a friend at the nation and I said, I want a copy of that interview I did with Golda Meir in 1956. And he said, well, I'll have my, my assistant look. Calls me back about three or four days later. He said, we can't find it. We've, my assistant's looked all over. I said, listen, I'm not crazy. I am not having hallucinations. I did interview Golda Meir in March of 1956. More time passes. Then he calls up. We solved the problem. In 1956, she was still... Golda Meyerson, Golda Meyerson from Milwaukee, via Kiev. And uh, in those days, and this was the first eight years of Israel, they had made it a law that if you went into the government, you had to have a Hebrew name. So that's how she became Golda Meir instead of Golda Meyerson. And, uh, but I, I was so glad to be proved that I hadn't imagined this whole thing. It was very, very gratifying. And she was terribly nice and uh, nice. Did you see her toughness? Did it come through? Could you see that she was going to be running things in a little while? Oh, yes. Just like Miss Fern Hall. <laughs> there was no messing around. I wrote down the next, uh, I thought we would end up with um, about a tight spot that we were in at some point. I'll go first. I was, well, as Doug mentioned, every time you leave the bases in Afghanistan or Iraq, you could get blown up because they hide the bombs under the road. And um, if you're, it's just like playing Russian roulette. It probably won't blow up on you, but it might, and it does blow up on some people, and it doesn't always kill them. And it certainly rings their bell. They have tremendous concussions. And it's just, it's a terrible experience to go through. So there's that. And then, uh, and so I was kind of new at it. So I was kind of on edge for that. And we were driving through a little town just across the Tigris River. I think it was called Khalis, K-H-A-L-I-S. And suddenly, and we're, I'm in a group of about 10 Humvees. And suddenly, the, uh, we are getting fired on by um, small arms and you know like in the movies when the gun hit, or a bullet hits the metal it kind of goes pew and it well it really does sound like that so it was that was kind of scary although the gun trucks are so well armored that they might as well have been throwing eggs so it wasn't really that 
scary. You felt totally snug. And at the time, the U.S. was trying to win hearts and minds. So we, they looked around to see where it was coming from, couldn't figure it out, <clears throat> decided not to shoot back. Plus, um, there, were chill, there were people all around us during this. I mean, you just can't imagine the, such chaos. And, but they treated it like it was normal. I, I was looking out the window, and all this action was happening five feet away from me. There was r bullets probably from an AK-47 ricocheting off the thing. And, uh, and I wrote this. There were civilians everywhere, too. Iraqis standing around, children playing. One child, he looked to be about eight, ran away as fast as he could once the shooting started. But a half dozen other kids didn't flinch. They stood at the roadside, waving at our convoy. One of them, wearing a shirt that said Lakers, even did a little dance, a version of that raise the roof step you saw in the clubs and in the NBA in the 90s. One soldier tried to wave the kids away, but they just stood there smiling as if our gun truck was an ice cream truck. So, all right, Doug, what about you? <laughs> Well, it's kind of like what you say, is that it's, it's what they call a 360-degree war, which means that the threat comes from everywhere. It's not like there's a front line. You're just, if you're out, that's everything's okay, everything's okay, then boom, it's not. Here's an IED or there's, you know, a, an ambush or the gunner's down or, you know. And if you're in Kabul, then it's kidnappings and, you know, just lots and lots of stuff going on. And, and it kind of... Everybody's trying to keep it together because it's okay until it's not. So soldiers keep it packed in pretty tight. And and I, I spent a lot of time in Helmand province. It is in the news a lot because we're in the process of losing Helmand province. And the there was a major assigned to me because the Marines didn't like me. So they made this, we were the Bobsy twins. Everywhere I went, he had to go. And we got to be friends. And And he was a family man from South Carolina, was a, actually a professional photographer, was a wonderful guy. And, and one day we were walking through a, a Danish forward operating base, which has really good coffee, actually. We're, we're walking down through, you know, what's called HESCO barriers, these giant walled barriers. And he suddenly said, suicide bombers, you know? And, and he said, I look for nipples. And I'm looking at him, thinking of the Afghan women completely covered in burqas. And I'm thinking, how did we get from this to that? And he said, no, no, the men, if, they, if I can see their nipples, they don't have suicide vests on under their shirts. And so that's how I tell. So I don't know, there's my tip of the week. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, so Doug and I were, were trying to stay out of trouble, but Uncle Dan here, age 23, is actually courting it. At some point, he finds it. Well. I was also courting trying to make some money. And uh, as Calvin Trillin always said, the nation is famous for paying the low two figures. So uh, <laughs> I, I thought if I could only sell an article to the Saturday Evening Post, that would, that would take care of me. And everyone knows $750, that would be a king's ransom. So I figured, but I had to think of a big feature that would appeal they would have human interest. So I learned there was a village that was half in Israel and half in Jordan called Beit Safafa. And, and so families were divided by the armistice line. 
and they had to live in different countries, the same families. So I thought, this is a great story. So I went to the Israeli side, I interviewed the people, and then I needed to go to the Jordan side. But I was not allowed to go there as a journalist. So somebody says, you know, you can cross into Jordan on a religious holiday if you can prove you are a religious pilgrim. So you have to get a letter from a minister. So at that time, I am a Hemingway atheist, and I started to think, what minister can I go to? And then I remember my grandfather was a Baptist minister in Shelbyville, Kentucky. So I went to the Baptist minister in Jerusalem, and I said, I want to go over Easter as a religious pilgrim to Jordan, to the old city. And he said, well, what Baptist, he said, where do you live? I said, New York. Well, what Baptist church do you belong to in New York? So, of course, I didn't even know of one in New York. I said, oh, I belong to the 42nd Street Baptist. I figured that was safe. So he wrote me a letter. I was able to go into Jordan. I was all excited. But before going to the village, I thought, this is my chance. I, I went to interview political people. I interviewed the ex-mayor of, of Jordan, uh, of Jerusalem and Jordan. Uh, I'll never forget, I had his card for a long time. Was, his name was Araf El Araf. And I then I went to refugee camps. I interviewed people there. And then I finally got to it. Okay, there's not much time left. I got to go to the village. So I strolled down to the village, which of course is on the border. And it doesn't occur to me that you're not supposed to go to the border. And I get close to the village and suddenly there's two guys who pop up on each side of me. They're Arab Legion guys. And they have those red and white kafiyas on their head like you see Yasser Arafat wore. And they're first very friendly and they said, oh, uh, where did you come here from? And I said, oh, from Israel. Then they were no longer friendly. They said, we must take you to the military governor in Bethlehem. Well, I'd always wanted to go to Bethlehem. <laughs> One of my fondest memories of my parents sitting around in the living room at Christmas, my father playing this push pe foot pedal organ, and we're standing around singing a little town of Bethlehem. Well, this wasn't like that. <laughs> so we go into this, what's like a big basement, a dark room and a big desk and a big man in a big black coat sitting behind the desk. And he says, from where have you come? I said, Israel. He says, no. Uh, from where have you come? I said, uh, the United States, no. I try again. New York, no. So I'm thinking, I don't, I'm not going to figure out the right answer. Finally, he says, you have come from occupied territory. And therefore, we will have to take you to Arab Legion headquarters in Jerusalem. You will go there. I will send two Arab Legion soldiers with you. You will go back to your pension, you will report to Arab Legion headquarters, 
at nine o'clock in the morning with all your possessions. Well, that would include my notebooks. And my notebooks are full of these interviews with political people, which I wasn't supposed to be doing. I'm supposed to be a religious pilgrim. So they think I'm a spy. I'm at the border. And my passport, in fact, I, I was, before I left, I, I was working for a professor doing research on a book he was writing, so it said researcher. So that's even more suspicious. So anyway, I get to my pension, I think, okay, I've got to get rid of these notes. So I take all the notes out, lot them up, and then I go out into the street. And this is the old city of Jerusalem, and it's all enclosed. So there aren't any, like, curbs and whatever. Everything is one piece. And there seem to be Arab Legion soldiers at every corner. So uh, I realize I can't just drop the things. Then, then that, if they pick them up, it's even more guilty. So I go back to my room. I think, okay, I'm going to have to burn the notes. So I wad them up, and I hold them over the toilet and light a match. And I burnt my hand, and I dropped the notes into the toilet. And I go, oh my God, this is worse now. It looks like I tried to destroy the note, and, and I've got to get rid of them. And I pick them out of the toilet, and I wring them, try to wring them dry. And I realize there's only one thing to do. And as I realize this, I know years later, I didn't know how many years later, but years later, this will be a good story. But right now, <laughs> right now, it is very serious. And the only thing I can do is eat the notes. <laughs> I sat up all night, and I took pieces of paper, crumpled them up into a little wad, and I spent the whole night eating the notes. Uh. So I went to Arab Legion headquarters in the morning, a little woozy from no sleep and eating paper. <laughs> and uh, they said, so what do you think you're doing here? What are you trying to make peace with the Jews and the Arabs? Uh, they're, they're trying to get a fix on me. No, no, I didn't mean that. But what, you say you're a religious pilgrim. What, what religious shrine have you been to? Well, I. I was going to. Uh, uh, so they said, okay, either we have to send you to Cyprus, which was cost money that I didn't have, or we have to send you back across the border to occupied territory, or we have to put you in jail. And you know, nobody knew where the hell I was. So this is pretty scary. And then I think, they think I'm a spy. Now, wait a minute, Hemingway said you, you should get shot at, but he didn't say you should get shot. <laughs> so anyway, I go outside and I wait for their decision, and thank God, who must protect innocent young people, uh, they said, okay, we're going to send you back. You have to take all your possessions. You have to be out of Jordan within the next three hours. You can cross through the Mandelbaum Gate, which was the passageway between the Jordan and the Israeli side of Jerusalem. And I just thinking back today, I didn't go straight, but he said, you have three hours. 
Well, on my way, I passed the Mount of Olives. I thought, gee, I've never been there. And so I went up and sat on the Mount of Olives for an hour, which now seems really insane. But anyway, I got out just in time, and I was very, very happy to be in occupied territory and very lucky. Uncle D. And I had to eat his words. And I figured... I figured even though I hadn't been shot at, that Hemingway would be proud. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Uncle D. Now, um, Susan Neville, <clears throat> the writer, is going to read us something from the great Janet Flanner, Indianapolis native, uh, one of Uncle Dan's heroes. You want to talk about Janet Flanner? Well, Janet Flanner, who is very unsung and unrecognized here, but she was for many years the correspondent for the New Yorker from Paris. She wrote under the name of Janet. She was a journalist, too. She covered the Suez War. She, she did a three-part interview with Hitler when he was coming to power. She was a serious journalist. And she later, her uh, dispatches from Paris won a National Book Award. So uh, her Hitler bio, bio, um, uh, profile in the New Yorker is still held up in journalism. It's like the greatest profile um, ever. It's terrific. From like 1938 or something like that. Yeah, um, Janet Flanner, Janae, wrote for The New Yorker from 1925 to 1975. And those of you from Indianapolis are familiar with the Flanner and Buchanan mortuary. And for years, um, this is the only thing I ever knew about Janet Flanner. Um, she wrote one novel called The Cubicle City. She's a person who left the Midwest, went to live in Paris, and she was there as Hitler was taking power. Those pieces are very powerful. And at the end of the war, one of the, the most famous photos of Hemingway is of him sitting next to Janet Flanner on um, the day that Paris was liberated. And are they not sitting in a bathtub? Are they sitting in That's a bathtub? <laughs> okay, well, I didn't realize that. They were, of course, sitting in a bathtub trying to figure out how to shoot at one another. This piece is about the Moulin Rouge posters of Toulouse-Lautrec. This is about the woman in the Moulin Rouge posters, and I do not speak French, so anything French, please forgive me. The death and misery of La Goulet, one of the great demimondains of the 90s, petted can-can dancer of the then devilish Moulin Rouge, model for Toulouse-Lautrec and some of his famous cabaret canvases, and general toast of the whiskered town, afforded her a press she had not enjoyed since her palmiest days. La Goulet was born Louise, Louise Leb Weber, daughter of a cab driver. She was a pretty, full-fleshed blonde of the mortal Olympian type, popular with the gay Edwardians the world over, rising by natural stages from the sidewalks to the ballet of the Moulin Rouge. Her triumph came when bankers and impressionists drank champagne from her shoe. She did the split amidst the 60 yards of lace, trimming her stylish long skirt, and starred in the quadrilles of her famous partners. The Boneless Wonder, Sewergate, very popular in his period, 
and a lady known as Nani Pate and Lair. Lair. La Goulet achieved a private hotel in the Avenue de Bois and even lived in what had once been the property of her famous predecessor, Pava, the fashionable mistress of Napoleon III. It was from this discreet mansion that La Goulet was invited to dance before a gentleman who afterward literally covered her with banknotes and turned out to be the Grand Duke Alexis. She had charm, a dazzling complexion, and wit. It was the last great heyday for courtesans, and she made hay. Then came her fall. She went to jail after some lark. She became a lion tamer in a street fair. She became a dancer in a wagon show. Toulouse Lautrec painted curtains for her, but she forgot them in some barn, and the rats gnawed at them. Then she became a laundress. Then she became nothing. A month ago, she reappeared old and dancing drunkenly in a few feet of a remarkable documentary film about the rag pickers of Paris called, after their neighborhood of wagon shanties, The Zone. Her last interview was given to the Weekly View. After the first glass of brandy of the interview, she took out a cracked mirror. After the third glass, she recalled her cab driving father. After the fourth, she remembered the Grand Duke Alexei and on the promise of a box of face powder even remembered her son who had died in a gambling den. A few weeks later, her rag pickers took her to a city clinic where she too died, murmuring as if declining a last and eternal invitation, I do not want to go to hell. <laughs> Great. Now our finale by the great Sophie Thought. <laughs> Uncle Dan's Story Hour was recorded live at the legendary Red Key Tavern on Monday, September 19, 2016. For tickets and information on future Story Hour events, visit redkeytavern.com. Uncle Dan's Story Hour was made possible in part by Beer Brewery, Miller Eads, and listeners like you. Special thanks to The Neon Sign for guiding the way to the Red Key, host Will Higgins from the Indianapolis Star, creative consultant Ann Ryder, co-producers Michael Therowechter and Pat Chastain, with special guest author Douglas Wissing, and thanks to Jim, Dolly, and Leslie Settle and the fantastic staff at the Red Key Tavern. Our recording engineer is Steve McQuarrie. The WFYI program director is the awesome Roxana Caldwell. Uncle Dan's Story Hour was created by Michael Therowechter and Dan Wakefield. Thanks for listening to our show. I'd like to leave you with these words from an ancient Egyptian Philo of Alexandria who said, Be kind, for everyone you meet is fighting a great battle. <laughs>